Hey everyone, you're listening to the Tab Geeks podcast. My name is Jess Nolan. I'm your host and the co-founder of Tab Geeks. Today's guest is Kathy Winger of the law offices of Kathy Delaney Winger in Tucson, Arizona. Our topic this week is GDPR, CCPA, WTF, because I'm sure that's what you're all thinking. Kathy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jesse. I'm happy to be here. Now, usually when we have tech people on the show, we like to explore their past of how they got into technology because nobody has the same story. Everybody has a different set of circumstances, whether it was through school or not through school, uh, through you know just a, a random occurrence in life or something else that they ended up in tech and, and now they love where they are. You being a lawyer, how did you get into the tech space? Well, it's interesting. I, I, I suppose it was sort of random um, on my part as well. And I think very different from a lot of other lawyers who are in the tech space right now. Um, I got into it, uh, I would say, within the past... I don't know, five, five to seven years. Um, and it really all started with, um, the target breach and what started happening in the legal world with the target breach. Um, but, but what prompted me to have any interest in that, um, was my banking background. So right now, um, you mentioned my law firm. I'm a solo practitioner in Tucson, Arizona, and I'm predominantly a business lawyer. Um, and so I work with individuals and companies um, on managing their risk. And so, uh, you know, what happened with the target breach and what sort of perked me up and, and piqued my interest in the tech area and in cybersecurity specifically um, was the changes in the law that I saw starting with target. But I recognize them as changes and as being significant because of the background that I had before I became a business lawyer. I was a banking lawyer for years on the East Coast. I was an in-house attorney at a bank. Um, and one of the major things that we did um, at the bank and that I worked with was credit cards and issuing credit cards. And back when I was at the bank, um, cybersecurity was always an issue for us. Um, I like to say I do a lot of speaking on cybersecurity and I like to say I was involved in cybersecurity before it was cool um, because it was back before anybody was really thinking of it. We were always thinking of it and we were conscious of it um, because it was a cost of doing business for us as a bank, you know, issuing credit cards um, anytime there was fraud, anytime account information was stolen and misused, the bank was on the hook for the loss. It wasn't the consumers, it wasn't the merchants, it wasn't the businesses, it was only the banks. So it was a cost of doing business for us. And we hated that. You know, we, you know, we didn't like that cost, we didn't like that. We had to bear it, but we didn't have any choice. There weren't any parties that we could sue to recoup our losses. So there was a huge impetus when I was back at the bank to, to secure information um, and to take steps to secure information. And really, you know, Congress did that intentionally, put banks on the hook because they viewed them as being in the best position to take steps to protect information. So it made sense. Um, and that was sort of the thought process behind it. 
Fast forward to the target breach. Um, I'm practicing law as a business attorney, helping my businesses and individuals deal with risk. And I see what's happening in the cybersecurity world and what's happening, what happened with target and what has continued to happen is liability for data breaches. Um, and the issue of cybersecurity has started to apply to everybody. Um, it's not just banks that have to worry about it. It's any company that um, has any information that works online. Um, really, if they even have employees and they have employee information, they have exposure. So as a business attorney, it really became a risk that I was looking at for my clients and trying to advise them first that they have the risk and then second, you know, what can they do to, to minimize that risk and to protect their company um, from being destroyed by the risk as, you know, any other legal risk could happen. So uh, it's really my banking background that led me to the interest in cybersecurity um, because of what was happening in the law. And it was really sort of fascinating for me as a lawyer to see this new area developing um, and to see it growing Um, and scary for me as a lawyer for my business clients having to deal with it and address it. And then as time has gone on, compliance with statutes has become a bigger issue and I think will become an even bigger issue going forward. Um, And that's something that I've always done as a lawyer as well. Certainly as a banking lawyer, we had a ton of regulations to comply with. We were highly regulated. Um, And so that has always been part of my background. And, you know, part of what I do as a business lawyer is help my clients comply with the law. So in terms of cybersecurity and data breaches, the laws and the regulations that are out there it's just another compliance area that I assist my clients with. That's a really interesting path in. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is. It is. It's interesting and kind of circular. But I think the perspective that I have is unique. You know, when you said tech people, everybody sort of comes to it a different way. Um, I think my approach to it was very different. Um, and I think my sensitivity to it and to the concept of risk being spread to lots of different parties um, was particularly uh, high based upon what I had seen in my past practice. Now you said that you like to see or you're enjoying seeing the law come together. Honestly, it looks a bit like the Wild West at the moment. It does. It does. Um, but but it is coming together because what's happening from a legal perspective and, and, you know, the Wild West is a good way to describe it and is accurate. But what's happening from a legal perspective are, you know, legal concepts and legal theories that have been applied to many different issues being applied in the cybersecurity and the data breach area. Um, so that's really um, what's interesting to me to see, to see how it happens. You know, and I'll, gi- I'll give you an example. Um, I, I recently um, w- was studying a decision that came out in the Equifax case. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with that. There was a, a huge breach um, probably almost a couple years ago at this point. Um, and there are lots of lawsuits arising out of it. Um, and in January of this year, there was there were several opinions um, issued 
by uh, a trial judge uh, who's hearing, who's consolidated all the cases and who's hearing them. And one of the decisions had to do, it was a, a securities claim. Um, and it was made by shareholders who alleged that Equifax had made misrepresentation about its data, misrepresentations, excuse me, about its cybersecurity program. Um, and that they as investors were misled by those representations and they were suing for violations of the um, you know federal securities laws, um, and I ran across this opinion, and it was fascinating to me because it was really one of the first and one of the few times I got to see a court go through a company's cybersecurity program um, and determine where liability, where legal liability would flow from the issues with that program and the deficiencies in that program. Um, and so it, it was fascinating to me as a lawyer to hear a judge talking about things that Equifax should have done and didn't do and things that Equifax said and didn't say and how that was a basis for liability. So the law really is coming around. It's a slow process because with a lot of the cases that are out there, they settle and there aren't opinions. This, there are several opinions um, and you can really really take what the judge said in terms of the elements of, of the claim of a securities fraud claim and Equifax's cybersecurity program and the statements they made, and you can map it out and you can follow how a judge looked at those and how a judge found them as a basis for liability. Um, and so that's fascinating to me because, you know, that gives me as a lawyer an opportunity to say to my clients, you know, and people who are trying to function um, with this new law, well, this is how a judge will look at it. You know, this is how a judge may, you know, determine that you're, you have liability because of deficiencies in your cybersecurity program. Um, and so to be able to do that, that these decisions analyzing the programs are relatively new. But they are happening and they are coming. And those are, you know, traditionally in the law, those are the basis for determining what clients should and shouldn't do. You know, what, what judges have ruled is negligent um, or it is reasonable. You know, you can use that as a basis as to, you know, determining whether you're acting reasonably, you know, and that's the standard that's going to be applied and that is applied to businesses. You have to take commercially reasonable steps to protect information. The decisions flesh out what's a commercially reasonable step and what's not a commercially reasonable step. And that is happening. The FTC has done that. Um, but now I'm seeing it in court decisions as well. Now, let's back up a minute here. For those of you who those of our listeners who have been living under an enormous sized rock for the last couple of years, GDPR is the European privacy law and California's uh, CCPA, which correct me if I'm wrong, is the California Consumer Privacy Act. Correct. I always forget which way that's worded. Uh, and, you know, there's there's 50 states. We're about to have 50 privacy laws unless uh, the U.S. government comes out and says, OK, well, here's one to rule them all. Um, you know, where did this 
come from? We had a long time. We had a lot of uh, areas where, as you mentioned before, it was just the banks that were held uh, accountable of this. And all of a sudden, there were uh, a, a whole mess load of hacks. Hackers were getting much, much more capable and uh, much more daring. Do you know... Was there kind of a, a tipping point, whether in Europe or anywhere else, where somebody said, okay, we need to be the first ones to, to take a look at this. We need to actually do something about this. Well, um, it, it, you know, it, it, it depends on what sort of uh, legislation you're talking about, um, because, you know, sort of the tipping point in terms of, you know, this happening it is sort of been the explosion of people doing things online and, and collecting information and holding information um, and using information and people sharing their information online. You know, when I was with the bank 10, 15 years ago, that wasn't happening as much. Now it, it's just all over the place. And so, um, you know, that really it was the start of it. And then you had the data breaches. And so you had people's information that they've shared is then put at risk when a company is breached and hackers, you know, obtain the information and want to use it for wrongful purposes. So because of the explosion of both of those, what you have from a legislative and a regulatory perspective is countries uh, or governmental organizations, the European Union, whether it's states federally, looking at it and saying, okay, what do we need to do or what can we do to protect consumers? Because consumers are at risk. They've shared their information. And after sharing it, it's fallen into the wrong hands. And what, what can we do to protect them? So I believe, you know, with GDPR, that's really where, where it comes from. I will tell you within the United States, I've noticed in the time that I've been studying this and watching what's happened, there really have sort of been two distinct legislative areas. And the first dealt with data breaches and dealt with providing notice and what companies had to do when there was a data breach. And at this point, there are 50 different state statutes that apply in the case of of a data breach, depending on what, where your company's based, what consumers you work with, where you do business, all of those. And so there are 50 different requirements um, in terms of what constitutes a breach, what kind of notice you have to give, when you have to give it. There's not a federal statute and there's not a uniform statute. Those statutes have been around for quite a while. What I've seen happening since GDPR and now with this new California Act. Um, and New York is already talking about a statute similar to California's, which goes a little bit further. Um, it's it sort of shifted from data breaches to the idea of consumers' rights over information and the idea that information has value. And I think that's a relatively new view. And that started with the GDPR. And now we see it coming, um, you know, starting in the United States with California really being the first state to have something. And so it's different than do I have to give notice if there's a breach. There are provisions in the statute that talk about breaches and talk about security steps that you have to take. 
but it's also the concept of consumers have rights. And because consumers have rights, you as businesses have responsibilities. And we're going to impose those responsibilities on you. And the responsibilities have to do with providing privacy notices and then responding to requests that consumers can make where they can ask specifically what you're doing with their information. They can ask you to forget them, to delete their information. All of those things are from the perspective of consumer rights. And it's not surprising that that would start to happen. I think the sharing of information was the first step. The data breaches was the second step where, where, you know, information was gotten into the wrong hands. And then the third step would be, okay, consumers, we're going to try to protect you. You know, we're going to try and protect you with legislation, with regulation, because you've shared something with this company. And, and what I see happening, and this is really sort of even the newer phase is the idea of legislators recognizing that information that consumers share has value so that when you as a consumer are sharing information, whether it's your email address or your social security number or your credit card number, you're providing something of value to the company and the company has obligations with respect to that information. And I can even see it, you know, in the future. And I've heard some noises made to this, you know, uh, along these lines of putting an actual value on information, a numeric value. And so when that happens, businesses are going to have exposure for a number, you know, a, a number of what, whatever the value of the information that the consumer has shared with you, you now have exposure to that amount. You know, um, that hasn't, I haven't seen that happening yet, but it's the natural progression of things. So I think it really is how much information is shared by consumers how often it's breached and it gets into the wrong hands and sort of legislators and regulators stepping in on behalf of consumers as they often do in the regulatory area to say, we're going to protect you. You know, you have these rights and we're going to put them into a statute and say that, yes, you have these rights and they're enforceable. And if businesses don't comply, then it's a problem for the business. It almost feels like the inevitable turnout that one day they're going to have a price tag on it and that maybe even we'll get paid based on, you know, what company or how much of our data uh, was leaked or even just to, to have access to our data. And I think it's really the access. Um, I, I've heard before, and you've probably seen and heard this much more in the tech industry, but I heard a speaker, I can't remember what the context was, but this speaker was saying, um, you know, if you're, you're not... Pay- paying anything to um, get something, whether it's a newsletter or, you know, anything like that. If you're not paying anything, your information is what you're paying. By sharing that information, that's the commodity. It's not a huge jump to go from a commodity to what's the value of the commodity, from my perspective anyway. There are a lot of people that say that data is more valuable than oil. It's the world's most valuable commodity. Exactly. And you look at it from, you know, from legislators and regulators' points of view 
you. You know, their job and their role as they see it is to protect consumers because it's a view that individual consumers on their own really don't have a lot of power, you know, to enforce their own rights. That's really the job of the regulators or the government, you know, that that's what they see. That's how they get elected, you know, to say this is what we did for you. So it makes sense that they would look to information and say, okay, consumers, you know, you should understand that you're giving something of value and you have rights to it. Mm -hmm. Now, getting into the background of the formations of all of this or um, the construction of of these laws, I understand that GDPR took approximately two years to draft and then they had something like another two years of comments before it actually went into effect as compared to the California law, which they drafted in something like five days. Can you give a little context into that? Do you know anything about that? Um, you know, not a whole lot. You know, the in terms of, you know, one of the things with GDPR um, that you have to keep in mind is um, it, the information is viewed differently um, in Europe than it is in the United States. And in terms of government versus a business and protecting um, what who consumers need protection from, whether it's the government collecting information or whether it's businesses collecting information. So I suspect that's why the GDPR took longer and had a longer incubation period because it was such a new concept at that point um, that, that I'm not surprised. It was really the first any sort of regulation to do that. Um, and when you have a first like that, oftentimes, you, you know, you, you take your time um, and it takes time to do that. I refer to California as, you know, I talked about the, their their statute. You know, they looked at the GDPR and said, hold my beer um, and said, we're going to take what the GDPR did and we're going to extend it. Well, California never saw a law or a tax it didn't like. Exactly. And they're always on the forefront. You know, they really are. Legally, they always are. So it's not surprising to me that they would follow GDPR and go a little bit further. Um, and in terms of... You know, the timing, you know, GDPR had really had already gone through the long process. So California could take what they had done and build on that. And that's often the case with statutes, you know, and and when you say, you know, that you have different state statutes and no federal standards, that makes it really tough from a compliance perspective. Um, because what typically happens is um, states will build off of other states litigation. I mean, legislation, excuse me. So you don't, it doesn't take as much time because you're not reinventing the wheel. You're not starting with a blank slate. You're starting with legislation that's already existing and you're taking some of the concepts and then adding your own. And that doesn't take as long. So typically what I talk about in terms of legislation, regulation and compliance is if you don't have to comply with California statute right now, chances are within the next, you know, I don't know, five years, there's going to be a statute that you are going to have to comply with that's going to have those requirements or have similar requirements. I imagine by then we'll have a uh, uh, U.S. government level one, a national one, instead of individual state ones. Uh, I know that I know that each individual states right now are still mostly playing the waiting game. You mentioned New York getting ready to roll out their potentially more uh, aggressive right. plan. 
and uh, Nevada has one that already went in effect uh, last month, but there is a bit more scaled back and is just protecting purchases. And I think that's true. Although I have, I have to tell you, you know, if the data breach notification statutes are any indication, you know, no federal legislation has been forthcoming, you know, and that's been with the, with the notice statutes, that's been a problem for years, or that's been an issue for years complying with all those different statutes. So I, I don't know. I, I really don't know what the chances are that federal legislation will come out. Now, let's get into some more meat and potatoes here of the California law, because most of our listeners are Americans. Sorry to uh, our international listeners here. But if you are a business that operates in California, what uh, at what point do you need to become compliant with this CCPA? Are there certain levels of revenue that you need to meet or, you know, certain areas like mom and pop businesses? Do they have to be freaking out about this kind of thing? Yeah, there, well, there are, and it really, um, and I'm going to refer you to, and I'm using, I'm using this because, um, it, it'll be helpful to hear, but I would refer people. I'm in the process of writing a series of articles. Um, on the CCPA, it's a sort of FAQ, frequently asked questions um, about the statute, um, and that's one of the questions I've already I've already published the first part one of it. Um, I'm getting ready to publish part two, but that's really the first. Um, one of the first questions that I covered um, in my in in the, the FAQ, which is who's covered by it. Um, so I'll just go through that with you. Um, under the Act, a covered entity is a business that as an entity that does business in California, collects or determines processing procedures for personal information of California residents and meets one of the following criteria. You either generate more than 25 million in gross revenues or you buy, sell, receive, or share personal information from more than 50,000 California residents, households, or devices per year, or derive 50% or more of your annual revenues from selling consumers' personal information. So it does, you know, it does take into account the size of business that you are, um, how many residents, you know, California. The point of the act is to protect California residents and to provide for rights that California residents have with regard to their personal information. So it looks at the number of residents, households, or devices that you you know that you share the information or that a bot that you get the information from and then what are your annual revenues mm-hmm. so local smaller shops unless you're unbelievably popular you're safe exactly exactly yeah yeah and, and you know again um it it makes sense um to do it to do that and it's understandable um that goes back to what i said about banks um, you know, they're viewed, but they were viewed by legislators as the, the companies that were in the best position to protect against fraud. You know, they were issuing the credit cards. They were making the money from the credit cards. Legislators look and say, you're the ones who can put the systems in place um, to protect 
protect against fraud. And I can tell you, we did. You know, we paid a lot of money for neural networks to detect fraud and things like that. This statute, excuse me, is viewed similarly in that they're looking at bigger businesses um, and seeing that they're in a position to take these steps and to fulfill these requirements. I'm, I'm envisioning an entire new industry crop up of automated neural nets for, as a service to uh, have access to your information and guard it and uh, automate the removal of it if need be. I mean, I, I, I it, the system obviously works really, really well for the credit card companies. You know, I was in New York and somebody bought a whole bunch of uh, tennis equipment in North Carolina with my card and, you know, it was caught instantly and I didn't have to pay anything. And I imagine that as the larger companies really have to sink their teeth into this and they start developing this stuff, that that's just going to be something that they're going to build out uh, internally and automate that so that they don't even have to worry about it. Exactly. And they're in a position to do that. And legislators know that. You know, when, you know, they're, they're not stupid. You know, when they're drafting legislation, you know, they, they know. And, you know, in terms of small businesses, um, oftentimes a lot of legislation exempts, you know, companies that are small, you know, from whatever obligations they're imposing on them. So the California Act isn't any different in that respect. Yeah. And my day job, we're a, a mid-sized business and I was joking somebody in the office the other day that I'd never spent this much time with the lawyers before. <laughs> and you love every minute of it, right? Of course, of course, of course. You know, most of it is them doing the talking. I just sit back and listen, right? Right, right. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. All right. So um, uh, one of the things that I've been challenged with personally at work is, in looking at this, we, we fall into that. And, um, you know, we're, we're a real estate companies. So we've got a lot of people's information, obviously, and uh, other companies that are doing, you know, purchasing information. They, they need a lot of this information that would fall under PII, personally identifiable information, in order to do their jobs, in order to continue their business. So how does that work here? If I need that, like, is it going to start shutting down businesses because they can't um, be compliant with this law? Or is there something, or even more than that, if you have another law that you need to be compliant with, um, such, as, such as keeping exactly that information for X amount of time, such as in the real estate industry, how does that conflict happen? Who wins? Well, at this at this point, I don't see much of a conflict, you know, in terms of if you and what I've seen with, with legislation like this, if you have other um, statutes, I'm thinking of HIPAA, you know, and health information specifically. If you have other statutes that you have to comply with and hold information, this doesn't require you to violate those statutes. So so you still are required to comply with them. Um, and so in terms of this, I don't see much of a conflict. I mean, the biggest, the biggest two parts of this act and, and the things that I you know, sort of advise people that they they need to be aware of are number one, you know, as I mentioned before, what are consumers' rights and can you comply with those rights and being able to comply with them? Um, and so that's one part of it. And then the other part of it, which actually, and I, you know, I'd be curious as to how much you see this coming into play. You know, there's another part of the act and this goes into, you know, the question that you had about liability or exposure. The attorney general 
um, of California is the entity that has jurisdiction to enforce the act. So in terms of, you know, companies who aren't in compliance, it really will be working with the attorney general on that issue. But, but what has people in a tizzy over this act is it also provide and, and I'll point out what, what really, um, prompted me to say California, you know, looked at GDPR and said, hold my beer, um, is the private right of action, which provides consumers with a private right of action um, if there has been a breach, if, they're, if they've been, you know, the victim of a breach, a, a business that had their information, that's a covered entity. Um, and what it does, which is really from a litigation perspective and, you know, sort of giving giving everybody, you know, sort of nightmares, really, um, from a compliance perspective is um, it allows for statutory damages of $750 up to, I think it's a minimum of $750 um, per incident or actual damage suffered. And why that's a big deal is in the area of litigation and consumers litigating over data breaches when they've been the victims of data breaches. One of the things that has prevented uh, those lawsuits from going forward is the question of damages. Um, it, legally, it's a question of standing. And courts often find that consumers don't have standing to assert a claim when their information has been stolen because there aren't actual damages that they can establish. They don't have to pay the fraudulent credit card charges. Getting credit monitoring is standard now, um, and it's provided whenever there's a breach, you know, by the company that sort of just goes without saying that consumers would get that. So one of the things that has stood in the way of consumers recovering damages in data breach class actions is, it, it, uh, uh, you know, not having an amount that they could put on the loss. Um, you know, courts were have been hesitant to say your fear of having your identity stolen. We can't put a number on that and can't afford, can't award damages. So you don't have standing and you can't bring this lawsuit. California takes that away and says, here, you get a minimum of $750 every consumer whose information has been breached. If, you know, if you're a victim, that's huge because that's appealing to class action attorneys because then the damage issue is our already decided. And that's not a problem for lawsuits proceeding. Um, that's concerning for businesses because now their exposure goes up, you know, and their exposure to lawsuits. Um, but one of the things that the statute talks about, and this really does get into enforcement, is, you know, the way that you can defend yourself in one of these actions, or if the attorney general is looking into you, is to prove that you enacted, took commercially reasonable steps to protect information. Um, California, the statute uses different buzzwords, um, and I, I can't get them. I, they're not at my fingertips, but it's the idea of commercially reasonable steps. What do you need to do to protect information? And what California has done is they have opinions of the attorney general, and they're they're going to um, enact some regulations that talk about what are commercially reasonable steps to protect information, what are best practices. And if you are engaging in those practices, you have 
have protection, you have a defense in an action by the attorney general or by consumers. Um, and so that gives you some level of protection. Um, so when it comes to compliance and when it comes to enforcement, it's really those areas. Number one, being able to um, allowing consumers to assert their rights that the statute provides that they have. Um, there are privacy disclosures that you have to make at certain times, making those disclosures, and then, you know, employing commercially reasonable measures to protect information in the event that there is a breach. Now, the law goes into effect on uh, January 1st. This Correct. coming January 1st, but the AG is still or has just completed comments okay. on this. And now we're in this sort of waiting period. What happens here? How do they expect us businesses to get ready for this if we don't even know what we're supposed to be getting ready for? Well, you can you do know generally what you're have what you have to get ready for. Yeah. Don't do stupid shit. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah, <there's> that. <laughs> I didn't find that exact language in the statute, but I get what you're saying. Disappointed. <laughs> yes. Um, no, but I mean, in terms of, you know, there are things in the statute that aren't going to change. Regulations aren't going to change. They're just going to provide you with additional guidance. Um, and so in terms of the consumer rights, the consumers are going to have these rights. You know, they're going to have the right to contact you and say, you need to erase my information. They're going to have the right to do certain things. You can comply, you can get set to comply with that starting and should get set to comply with that starting January 1st, 2020. Um, the regulations, the interpretations aren't going to affect that. Um, and so that's, and in terms of disclosures and privacy disclosures and the information that you have to disclose, that's not going to change either you know, in terms of um, any any regulations that come out. So, you know, from my perspective, what the act says is what you should be ready to, to go with the 1st of January. Okay, so let's review. There's two parts to the CCPA law. You've got the private right of action and the right. attorney general enforcement. So the private right of action right. is the ability of any California citizen to say, hey, delete my stuff, Right. No, 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 no. The private right of action is just the data breach part of it. If you're a victim of a breach, you okay. can sue and say, you owe me a minimum of, se I don't have to prove any damages whatsoever. The fact that you had my information and there was a data breach, if you didn't employ reasonable measures to protect information, you know, if you didn't do that, you owe me $750. Okay. So assume it's a businesses have reasonable, uh, the reason a standard they meet yes. that standard they've got cybersecurity they've got you know right. databases are are separated and and no one person has yes. much access right so assume right. that's done what's next well i mean that on that side that's the protection you know in the event for the private lawsuits the other side are the disclosures that you have to make i mean the act specifically sets out what you have to tell consumers when you're taking it, their information um and then being able to respond to what the consumers are um when they assert their rights you know so if they you know send you a letter you have 45 days to delete their information 
information, you know, and it's set out in the statute what you have to do. So being able to comply with that is really the other part of it, making the the disclosures that you have to make and the statute sets those out and then being in a position to comply with consumer requests. Okay. And that's really, you know, that really then only will come up when you get the request, but you have to have something set up so that you can do it so that you'll be able to respond to those requests when you have to respond to them. And that's what the regulations will talk about and, you know, how you do that, you know, but the fact that you have to do it is a given now and that's not going to change. So in terms of getting ready, what are the the first steps that um, medium sized businesses and and, well, small businesses likely won't fall into this, but if they do, what are the steps that they have to do to get ready for this? The first steps I would say is look at your disclosures and what disclosures you have to make, you know, when the consumer is providing information. I'm sorry. So is that like a privacy policy, things like that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that, because that really, that's something that you have to put out as a business, you know, starting January 1st, 2020, if you're covered by the act. So you want to have the privacy policy, you know, I don't have it handy in terms of, but, you know, tell consumers what information you're collecting, what you do with it. You know, it's pretty specific in terms of what you have to disclose. And that's some, that's an affirmative obligation that you have and you're going to have when the statute goes into effect. You know, the, and then the second is responding to the consumer, you know, looking at what rights consumers have and what you as a business have to do to provide those rights, you know, to cover those rights so that when a consumer, infor- you know, so that it's enforceable so that when this consumer wants to assert his or her rights, that's not going to happen right away. You know, I don't think, um, but it could happen um, and you need to be ready, ready to address it when it does. And then the third part is what I said in terms of the reasonable measures. You know, I, I, I'm going to assume that everybody's doing that because everybody's acting in a commercially reasonable fashion and taking all required steps to protect information. We hope. Because I'm an optimist. <laughs> so that's the easy part. <laughs> okay, so... When can we expect to see the regulations come out? Do you know? I think I think they are out. I don't think they're in final. I think they're out for comment right now. So I would expect within, you know, what is it? It's November. They should be, I would think the month of November, by the end of November, they should have those finalized. Mm-hmm. So now, correct me if I'm wrong, the biggest parts to be worried about are the data breach parts of it. But if you're taking reasonable steps, then you're covered on that. The other part of it is to make sure that you've got the disclosures going on and to make sure that if somebody does come to you and says, hey, I want to get rid of my data, that you're ready to do so. But you don't need to really fuss about it immediately. Exactly. And then the other thing, too, is to look at, um, and, and this is really um, will be company specific, look, um, the act talks about things that you can and can't do with information and what kind of not selling it um, in certain circumstances, things like that. So specific businesses, depending on how they deal with information and what they do with it, will have to fu- you know go through and make sure that what they're doing isn't prohibited or that they have to make special disclosures about it or something like that. 
But that's going to be, you know, that's going to be very industry dependent. Which brings me to my next question, which is a two-parter. What about third-party tools as we live in a more increasingly uh, SaaS dedicated world, SaaS product world? Um, you know, we host all of that data in third-party providers. We use CRM from different companies or management, data management from different companies or even marketing tools. A lot of them are holding a lot of this data. Uh, what requirements do we have to hold them to? Or are we just going to hope and pray that they do it themselves? And then I'll ask the second part later. No, I would not advise hoping and praying that they do it themselves. Um, you have the obligation um, as the person who shared the information with them, you have the obligation to make sure that they're complying with any statute that they're required to comply with. Even if um, they're and you are, not a large enough business to fall under CCPA. Right. You're using them, right. And, and you need, and where that comes up in terms of, it, you know, and that's really sort of a general principle in the data security world. The FTC has said that, um, GDP, GDPR said it, the California Act, the New York cybersecurity regulation that was passed a couple years ago, all of them speak in terms of your, your vendors are required to comply and you do not escape liability by, by using them. You're liable for their failure to comply. And, you know, so in the, in the data breach area, the FTC has come up and said, you know, there are things that you need to do. You need to make sure that your vendors have the same or better data security standards than you do. Um, and you need to, you know, have in your contract with them, you know, that they're going to follow these standards and you're going to check, you know, all of those things. So that really is no different than what the law is generally at this point. And in, in the data security area, Area, there's really, you know, there's no avoiding um, liability by ha by the information being held by a third party. Now, as between you and the third party, you know, you can allocate liability amongst yourselves, you know, in terms of your contract and say, if there's a breach and it's their fault, they're responsible. But you as the party to the outside world and to the regulators are still going to be kept on the hook for that. Now, what about a lot of the smaller parties that we work with? So I'll use the example of real estate. We work with a lot of uh, smaller mom and pop style shops, you know, uh, plumbers, locksmiths, mechanics. The, the, a lot of their stuff is still on paper, never mind digital protection. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the, the, the black and white answer is you shouldn't be sharing information with them. I mean, that's, you know, if they don't have the same or better data security standards than as you do, then you have exposure. Mm -hmm. And how do you um, get them to be able to do their jobs if they need to know where, you know, where the person lives, for example? Right. Well, you don't, you know, you don't share the information unless you have guarantees from them that they're going to protect it, you know, that they have procedures in place to protect it. Otherwise, you're taking the risk and, and, you know, just having knowledge that you're taking the risk. You, you can assume the risk by doing it, but know that you're still going to be on the hook. You know, I mean, the fact is the way that it's looked at from a regulatory and legal perspective is you shouldn't be dealing with them. You shouldn't be sharing that information with someone who doesn't have standards that are the same or better than yours. Sounds like it's going to hurt a lot of small business. 
It is. It, it, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, you know, it's, it's pretty straightforward in terms of that, you know, and, and that's a way to sort of extend it out to small businesses, sort of an around the, around the bend sort of way to do it, you know, rather than straightforward, even if it's not covered, you know, they're still required to comply with aspects of it when it comes. And mostly those are in the security area, in the data security area rather than, you know, the obligations or the rights of consumers to, to, you know, have their information erased or assert those rights, those sorts of things, they're not going to come up because they're going to be coming to you. So it really does become, if there's a data breach because of this real estate office that keeps everything on paper, you're on the line for it. And as I said, you can, you can allocate liability as between you and the insurance, you know, office and say, if we're on the line, you're going to indemnify us. But if they're a small company, what are the chances they're going to have the funds to be able to do that? Yeah. Now, what about um, larger businesses that have multiple entities? We talked about the penalty for, you know, X amount of records that were breached or whatever. If it's all, mm-hmm. if the data is uh, being held by different entities or one di- one entity is the one that is collecting it and the other one is the, the one that's holding it, you know, can the damages transcend the different entities within a same parent company or, or even affiliated company, just the way that it would with a third party? Um, uh, yeah, I don't see why not. I, I, I don't, you know, I, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not looking at the statute and thinking of the statute. I'm thinking just in, from a general legal perspective in terms of legal theories. I don't see any reason why it would make a difference that it was the same company. Right. The logic makes sense that they would extend to cover. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So now just to touch back on, um, I guess what GDPR calls the right to be forgotten. Um, what does that entail? If somebody comes to you and says, all right, yeah, sure. I don't know what this means, but get rid of my data because I don't trust you. What data falls right. that? Right. And um, how long do you have to do that? And uh, what happens if you don't? Well, you have 45 days to do it. Um, if you don't, you're in violation of the statute. Um, and the, you know, you have exposure, the attorney general can enforce the statute in that regard. Um, and there are penalties that can be opposed, you know, for violating the statute. Um, and so that's really, that's sort of something that's going to be played out. You know, you have to see how they're going to apply the statute and, and what they're really going to do in those instances. You know, I think, you know, what I would predict is, it, you know, it, where you'll get to see how it's going to be applied. It'll be a situation where um, a company has, you know, sort of blatantly violated it, you know, and there have been consumer requests that have just been ignored and have not been handled. Um, And there, there have been a large number of them. And I would think you know, and again, I'm looking at my crystal ball here, but I would think that, you know, that's what the regulators will look to, to start with, you know, to use someone as an example, to use a large company, but technically, you know, you're in violation if you don't respond within the 45 day period, you know, and delete the information. Mm -hmm. Now this is only going forward, or I believe I saw that California is uh, a full year back, correct? I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think it can go back. I think it's a 12, a 12 month period. Yeah. But I mean, 
fund is only going forward, you know, in terms of the request, you know, it can go back a year, but they don't have the right to make the request, you know, until the statute becomes effective. Right. So come January 1st, they could call me up and say, hey, forget all of the 2019 stuff. Exactly. That's right. And interesting. Oh, this is complex. (laughs) I know it is. It is. And it's only going to get more complex. But the, the, the two positives that I will say, um, and I, I talk about this a lot in the data security world, um, you know, one of the, the um, positives is, you know, the idea of taking commercially reasonable steps to protect information, that being a legal requirement or that being a statutory requirement. Um, when statutes talk about that, when courts talk about that, when the FTC talks about that, they're talking about steps to that actually work. You know, they're talking about best practices. So you would go, you know, generally. So, you know, what what they're requiring, what's required of you from a legal perspective, it's not just required for the law. You're also getting protection out of it. From a technical perspective, it has value. You know, these steps, if you want to protect information, these are the things that you have to do. So you get, it's almost a dual benefit. You know, you, you, you comply with your legal allegations, but you're also getting protection. You know, you're also getting, you know, you're also protecting data and protecting information. And that's why, you know, when I talked about the court decisions, looking at cybersecurity programs and going into what companies are doing, that's really what they're looking for. So it's unlike a lot of times in the legal area, in the legal field, there are things that you have to do that the law just says you have to do, but they don't have any value. You know, you just have to check the box and you just have to do it because a law says that you have to do it. And this, area, you know, the the reasonable standards and the steps that you take to protect information, it's not just checking the legal box. Oftentimes it's checking the tech the, you know, the tech box. And it's taking it's actually taking steps to protect information. So I think that there's a value to that. So, you know, from that perspective, I think that, I, you know, I think that it's a good thing. The second thing, you know, that I like to say, you know, in terms of this, you know, eventually, I think almost everyone's going to have to comply with a statute similar to what California's doing. I think it's just a matter of time. So in terms of doing it, you know, you are setting yourself up as a business. You are setting yourself up to be in compliance going forward with other statutes that come into effect. And oftentimes, you know, statutes or or organizations that require you to comply with their regulations will say, if you comply with GDPR, if you comply with CCPA, then you will be deemed to have complied with our requirements as well. And so you get sort of a bigger bang for your buck. Okay. So, but if you are currently compliant with GDPR, uh, you're not going to be compliant with the CCPA, I understand. Now that goes a little bit further. Yeah. 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 But uh, big parts of it, you will be, you know, I mean, there's a lot of overlap. So you will, you know, you will be along the road, but you have to make sure, you know, that the specific California, if there are specific provisions that apply to you, especially in terms of what I talked about before selling information, what you do with information, depending on the type of company you are, you know, California is going to have stricter, stricter guidelines on that than GDPR. Mm -hmm. All right. So if you're a business, you're trying to get into this, you want to make sure that you're 
doing a analysis of your your workflow of data, where everything is coming in, where it's being um, uh, processed, and um, who has access to it. And the other side of that is where are you storing it? How are you storing it? How are you protecting it? As long as you've got that down, then you're in good shape to be ready for what could come your way uh, when this goes into effect. And uh, obviously, the security side of it as well is to make sure to uh, take uh, reasonable precautions in terms of cybersecurity and limiting access to your to your users' information, etc. Anything else? Um, well, I will give my, my standard legal disclosure here that, you know, every, this, anything that I've said, you know, in terms of compliance is general and not for any specific company. Um, you know, you, you have to look at your, your company and determine, you know, how the act applies to you. And I certainly can't give you legal advice unless I'm looking specifically at your company and the act together. So this is general, you know, sort of general information to share, but you know, what your mileage may vary. Right. Well, this is a good starting point. This is not a legal yeah. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I make that disclosure everywhere because I don't want there to be any confusion. Um, but it, you've summarized generally, here's what you have to start thinking about. You know what I mean? And this is what you have to do. You have to, then you have to, you have to take your company. You have to take what you're doing and hold that up against the statute and match it up. But those are the things you're going to be looking at. And if you're not operating in California, pay attention. This is coming soon to a state near you. Yeah, I I really think that. Now, again, you know, that's crystal ball from my perspective. But, you know, typically that's the way that it happens. Dominoes start to fall. Oh, absolutely. I believe it was uh, it was Forbes that said something along the lines of uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what the quote was. But essentially, um, California is the the first one to get started on this. But the, the trailblazer, but everyone else is paying attention. All, all, the, exactly. all the rest of the U.S. is is still on the wait and see game, but they're all yeah. watching carefully to see what California and now I guess New York, Maine, uh, Nevada, and some of the others are going to be doing as well. Exactly, and, and you know I'm concerned about a lack of a federal you know, a federal scheme, which, which is a shame because, you know, for businesses, it's costly and it's time consuming and it's difficult to comply with all these different statutes. Um, uh, I just, I'm not optimistic about a federal, about a federal law, although, uh, you know, I could be wrong on that as well. Um, but in terms of compliance, I think this is just the beginning of it. You know, I mean, GDPR really was. And, I, you know, I have clients here in Tucson who have to comply with GDPR. You know, so the way businesses operate these days, you know, your your reach goes internationally. You know, so you've got, na- you know, you've got state, you've got national and you've got international. And it's very easy to fall within the tentacles of these statutes. Sure, sure. What was the uh, the line? Teenagers in bedrooms creating the future. Doesn't take much <laughs> You know, (laughs) (laughs) very true, very true. So before we wrap up, is there any uh, more advice that you would like to share with our listeners? I don't think so. I think, you know, my, my biggest advice. And as I said, you know, what I'm happy to see is, you know, the idea that, you know, you can take reasonable steps to protect information and that's what's legally required. The concept of, you know, no one is buying onto the concept of 100% protection and a 
guarantee that there won't be a data breach. Everybody understands that, you know, in this day and age, it's, it, 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 it's just difficult. You just can't insure it. So you're not required to insure it. You know, what you're required to do is act reasonably. Um, and so from that perspective, you know, that, uh, makes me optimistic about it, you know, and as I said, the idea that you get protection and, and what they're looking at in terms of the legal standard is really what are the best practices, you know? Um, so, so that's really what I'd reiterate. That's sort of the common theme that I'm seeing through all of this. And that's sort of, that's continued from the, when, from when I first started looking at it and it still continues through the legislation that I'm looking at. Now you're on Twitter, correct? I am. And uh, what's your handle? At Kathy D. Winger. Okay. And on uh, my website, which is kdwinger.com, um, I, I write a lot of articles. You know, I try to keep people up to date on what's happening. I, you know, I had the GDPR article, uh, the New York cybersecurity regulation. Um, I'm doing the California Act, as I said. I'm also planning um, a summary of what I found with the Equifax cases. Um, so it's kind of a good resource um, for, for information in this area. Fantastic. I look forward to the other parts of your uh, series on this and to catching up. Great. Uh, folks, continue the conversation by joining our Tab Geeks Slack community. There's no sponsors, no assholery allowed. You know how this goes. That's at tabgeeks.com forward slash Slack. You can follow us on Twitter at Tab Geeks. You can follow me personally. I'm very, uh, very often very engaged on Twitter. I'm Mr. J. Nolan, N-O-W-L-I-N. My guest this week, Kathy, is Kathy D. Winger, W-I-N. G-E-R on Twitter and uh, that's uh, the beginning of a long and drawn out process that we're going to have to continue paying attention to Kathy, it's been very important, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure And uh, stay tuned everyone, we'll see you next week folks <laughs>